catch up on our YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube and, and uh, search Robertson Burrowing Anglican Church, or you can see it on our website too. There's a link there. So uh, do that because it's, it's just a fair bit of... We don't cover every single verse of Joshua. So there's a bit of catching up to do, and I think that'll be really helpful for you. Our, our homework the last week was to read chapters 7 and 8. I hope you got to do that. Um, that'll be really, really good. Last week, we left Israel victorious. So you remember Jericho was defeated. If you were here last week, we'd had this magnificent, dramatic presentation with the kids circling around some gymnastic mats. Anyway, it all fell down, and that, that represented the walls falling down. It's very good. So Jericho was defeated. God's promises were being realised. That, that's what was going on. But Jericho was being destroyed, uh, sorry, as Jericho was being destroyed, Israel was given the clear instruction. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, open it to Joshua chapter 6, verse 18. Joshua 6, verse 18. So here was the clear instruction. But keep away from the devoted things. You might remember this from last week. So that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. But, just skip down a few verses to 7 verse 1. Didn't take long at all. 7 verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. By the end of chapter 7, Achan and his sin, uh, Israel's sin, had been dealt with. And in chapter 8, verses 1 to 29, the problem of the defeat of Ai, uh, that's accounted for in chapter 7, had been reversed. You see, they, defeat, they were defeated by this, this, the city Ai and, um, because of Israel's sin, because of Achan's sin, because he had taken those devoted things. But that had been reversed in chapter 7. And even if you see it, chapter 8, verse 1, Joshua was encouraged to not be afraid and take up the battle for the land. But any victory, like all victories, would come through the Lord's work on Israel's behalf. The, you see, the relationship of promise, remember, that's what, it's a covenant relationship. Uh, that's what covenant really means, promise, between God and his people had been broken by this guy's Achan sin, really by Israel's sin, but then restored when God's wrath was turned away, was satisfied. And now the subsequent victory of I uh, showed things were back on track. So now, in our passage today, chapter 8, verse 30 to 35, the covenant promises are reconfirmed in what we call, well, it's a covenant ceremony. Here, Joshua and the people respond to God's promises. So, Serena's going to come up now and read Joshua 8, verses 30 to 35. Thanks, Serena. So, Joshua 8, 30 to 35. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. 
There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded, he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Okay, so leave that open. Uh, Where do we go now? Where to next? So I reckon that would have been the question on the lips of the people of Israel as they finish things up uh, in the battle for this town, this city, I, uh, A-I. In fact, the previous service, um, uh, Adrian, who, who, who's, that's us, he, we were debating about how to pronounce it and um, he was going with, I think he was going with A-I. No, it's more, it's more of an A-I. Anyway, I'm not quite sure. Um, but I'm going to go with I because I looked up um, the NI, some American bloke NIV reading on YouTube and they went with I. So that's where I'm going with. Anyway, where to next in the conquest of the land? Where to next? But for Joshua, there was not a shadow of doubt about where to next. There was not a shadow of doubt about what was to happen next because he had uh, the guidebook. Michelle and I, when we, um, uh, when we have time, we do enjoy a bit of bushwalking and a little while back, we came across this great little book. In fact, I forgot to bring it over. Oh, what an annoying thing. Anyway, you might have seen it. It's a, it's a book. You might want to help me, Annie. The, the, it's a book called The Great Walks of the Southern Highlands. Um, you don't have to go and run and get it. That's all right. It's about that big. It's a yellow, yellow cover, you know, the one. It's really good. It's a great book. And we've followed a few of them. And you, can, you can look them up and you go for these little excellent walks. It's an absolute winner. And I wish I could do a proper book review and have it in my hand. Maybe I'll run across and get it after the service. Anyway. You basically follow planned walks. That's how it works. You see, you look them up and you've got some pictures and directions and so on. It's, it's a, a guide, really. Introducing to you to all types of side trips and little hidden treasures, that sort of thing on your walk, that you might have missed if you didn't have this little book. You're in the hands of the experts who provide the script which you follow. And there's great satisfaction... I think, in following the instructions as you benefit from the expertise of these authors who have done all the walks. It's really good. I encourage you to get it, if you like bushwalking. And that, well, I suppose that supposes that the script is accurate and clear. Uh, otherwise, confusion and frustration reigns, and your marriage is tested. Um, <laughs> Joshua had no such problem. He has the script. He has the guidebook. Remember Joshua 1.8, the Lord said to Joshua, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And so in Joshua's well-instructed mind, there's no doubt about what should happen next. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, uh, sorry, 27, we won't look it up now, but Deuteronomy 27 verses 1 to 8 had made it all very clear which said, and I'm going to give you a bit of a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 27, 1 to 8. 
After crossing the Jordan, they were to make their way to Mount Ebal, where all the words of the God's law were to be written on large stones coated with plaster. An altar of the stones was to be built and sacrifices were to be made. But there's more. If we kept reading through Deuteronomy 27, the whole nation was to, was to assemble there, half on Mount Gerizim and half on Mount Ebal. Now, here's a little modern-day picture of this scene. So you can sort of ignore the, the townships and so on, but you can see there are clearly two mountains, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. In fact, it creates a natural amphitheatre where Joshua could speak to all the people and read the law to them. Where actually, it would have had to be the longest Bible reading you've ever had. Sometimes we have long readings, but nothing compares to this one. Uh, this would have taken a number of days. So there's, there's, you can picture that sort of scene. And the law, that's the blessing and the curses that, that um, is referred to in Joshua, were to then be recited. Even the, even the place itself uh, was following the script prescribed earlier by Moses. So Deuteronomy 11, verse 29 uh, when the, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering, entering to possess, uh, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. When, uh, well, you see, Mount, Mount Ebal, I could go back to the picture, you can sort of see it, but it's not that clear. Mount Ebal was barren and rocky, right? And Mount Gerizim was leafy and fruitful. So even the geography and the flora sent the message to the people, there are only two ways to live. Right? If you want blessings, well, then, then you go with God. If you want uh, curses, well, then you ignore God. Two ways to live. And they both prof carry profoundly different consequences, don't they? So that's the script. Right? That, that's the guidebook he has in his hand that, that, uh, that Joshua now carries out in this last section of Joshua chapter 8. He's being careful to follow everything as prescribed by God through Moses. So when we come to chapter 8, verse 30, which you can see in your Bibles in front of you, then, then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. He's following the script. Well, if you've... Um, You've been, you've been married for a while. I know some of you have been married close to, I don't know, uh, 50 years, I think, some, some people. Um, I wonder, even if you've been married for a short time, I wonder if you've ever renewed your vows. Oh, I'd love to know. Um, you know, you, the promises, the wedding promises you made on the day you were married. Uh, have you ever felt the need to? Uh, again, I'd love to know why. To th these promises, if you've got married in an Anglican church, this is what she said, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live, this is my solemn vow and promise. Now, I've said that to a, a lot more people than my wife, sadly. Um, <laughs> doesn't seem right, does it? Uh, I only said it once to Michelle, but um, lots to other people. Ever, ever had to renew, the, renew those vows or just felt like it was a nice idea, maybe on your... 50th or 25th wedding anniversary or something like that? Did you make it romantic or did you make it very functional? Now listen, dear, we need to say this again to each other. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I've heard some couples uh, do it every single year. Hmm. What did they forget? I don't know. Every year seems a bit much. Uh, I wonder why they do it. 
That's the situation Israel finds themselves in. They must renew their vows. They must renew their their covenant vows, the promises they make. So Israel, before Israel could finally move on to what's next, the defeat and later victory at Ai had slowed progress, that sin and well, the nation's sin really had slowed progress. You might remember Genesis, uh, sorry, Joshua 7 verse 11. Israel had sinned, they had violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. That, that slowed them down. So before they could, could, there could be any further movement into the land of rest, and the land of promise that God had promised them, this relationship had to be renewed. Uh, now this began in chapter 7 with the exposure and the judgment of Achan, guy who stole the devoted things but now what was needed was a national recommitment ceremony what was needed now was a renewing of the vows that's what was needed but it's not just a renewing of the relationship it's it's God moving in grace with his people so victories are given promises realized and God's people dependent on him okay let's spend a bit of time looking at this little ceremony that we read about in these verses at the end of chapter 8 the order of the ceremony is significant. This is what renewing the relationship looks like. First come the sacrificial offerings. So you notice there the burnt offerings, that's first. They, they relate directly to their, the people's sin and their need for a, atonement. Atonement really just means um, being made right with God, at one with God, the relationship's right with God. So in effect, these offerings, these burnt offerings, were about their righteousness before God, being right before God. Now following that is what's called the fellowship offerings or peace offerings. Some translations use either word. It's really a thanksgiving and the whole nation could take part in it as well. It's a thanksgiving for all that God has done and all the people share in it. So first comes the establishment of righteousness and then the enjoyment of peace. I wonder if you recognise that order. First comes the establishment of righteousness. Here's what God has done, and in response, we thank him. Thanksgiving. We have fellowship with him. See, there can be no peace or fellowship without the establishment of righteousness. Atonement. Forgiveness of sin. And then, of course, when we read our New Testaments, nothing's changed, has it? That's exactly what we read time and time again. And so following the sacrificial offerings, well, next comes the public copying of the law onto stones. I imagine that would have taken some time. It was coated in plaster, so it would last longer. Then the people gathered to hear the law read. The whole nation gathered under its authoritative truth. Note also the permanence of the law, and it's visible. They could now see it. They could even sort of touch it, pick it up. And it's like a bit like what we have today in our Bibles. And it's, for, it, and it's not just in Joshua's hands now, because previously Joshua had it, it was handed down to him from Moses. Now, well, everyone, it's for the whole nation, everyone could read it. Reading it publicly is also a, a public proclamation that the land belong, belongs to God. And that these are the terms on which it can be possessed and enjoyed. It's, it's why the, uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy to the church at Ephesus to devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. 
when we read the Bible publicly, as we've done twice this morning, and we sort of do it as we go through the sermon too, we read it publicly, we're devoting ourselves, we're sitting under its authoritative word. That's what we're doing. And it's the same here. They're sitting under, as, as God's people, God's authoritative word. So, let's put it this way. The, 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 uh, the people were gathered by the word of God. Uh, Joshua had the script, Deuteronomy, that sort of thing, uh, the guidebook. They were centred on the word. The heart of the gathering was the word of God. And finally, there's the necessity of the word. It had to be, it was to be heard by the whole community. But this renewal wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't to be a flash in the pan. Uh, like, like a marriage, the people must commit to the covenant. They must commit to the, the relationship. When I do um, a marriage preparation with, uh, with couples... I tell them to go and spend time on their own studying, reading, thinking, praying about the vows that I just read to you earlier. I give them the whole service and they can read through it. There's a couple other promises they make as well. But I want them to sort of actually tell them, look, go off, go on a mountaintop, go to the beach, do something or other on your own and spend some time thinking about what you're promising. Because they're promising it, they're making promises to each other. They're also making promises to those gathered in front of them at the wedding service and they're making promises to God. Uh, they, they must understand them and commit to them and then I, I say to them, you act on them. You act on them. You, you, you may act on those promises. You, you act on the... I shouldn't have to look it up, should I? I have to go back to my notes. I don't want to get it wrong. You act on for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in love, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. Um, they needed to commit to the covenant that they're about to make. And that's exactly what Israel were doing that day. The whole event, in fact, demonstrates God's commitment to his promises, his covenant. Uh, the, it's geographical location. Inside, they're inside the promised land. Uh, this ceremony's spiritual purpose, right, right relationship with God and therefore blessings of that enjoyed. All this demonstrates that God is making promises and keeping his promises. That's the, the theme of our whole series. God is the God who makes promises and keeps promises. And this ceremony, even where it is, demonstrates that's what's going on. That's God's commitment, which he continues to be faithful in. Israel must also commit to the covenant ob obligations, which all the covenant privileges hang. All the potential is there. The Ark of the Covenant... Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is the visible representation of God's presence. Uh, it's smack bang in the middle of the people. Although it's interesting in the next couple of chapters, if you're reading ahead, 9 and 10, uh, they lose the Ark. They find it in the field at least. How do you lose this thing? It's huge. It's painted in gold. I don't know what's going on there, but you're going to read about it. Uh, but it symbolises God's presence. It's smack bang in the middle of the people. God's people assemble around it. God is at the centre of national life and the very fact that this great multitude, all these people here, it testifies God, God keeping his promises. God is fulfilling his promises that he made way back to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and, and, and making his descendants a great nation and blessing them. And the fact that they're gathered here in this place in the heart of the land is testimony to the promises being fulfilled. But there's also a great sense of thanksgiving and joy expressed mostly in the fellowship offerings as the covenant relationship is being renewed. At the heart of it, all this is God's work done by his mighty power. 
the, the conquering Lord has given them this land. It's, it's a gift. It, it's God's land. And his, and his altar established and his law read proclaim God's sovereignty over these massive historical developments. So Israel must respond. It's a two-way thing. Israel must respond to the covenant promises of God and what God has done. And they all have to do it. Notice too, men, women, children, foreigners, all God's people must respond. Everyone has individual personal responsibility to be obedient to the, the terms of the covenant. No exception. The last thing they want is another episode like Achan. But the predominant note is, of the, is, is the blessing of God's people. So if you've got your Bibles, look at um, Joshua 8.33. We'll go from the second half. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Blessings are read and heard so that obedience flows from it. Obedience flows from thanksgiving. That's the emphasis. Obedience flows from thanksgiving. That's worth remembering. Obedience flows from thanksgiving. Now, I reckon this is helpful as we think about how these principles relate to us today. You see, I, I, we, live in a, we live in a culture that wants to be self-sufficient. Um, we, we don't want to trust or depend on anyone. We like to be very much individuals. We, we want to do things our way. Uh, we're very good at creating and worshipping all sorts of idols uh, for substitutes as God. Very good at that. But really behind it all is the great idol of self. That's the greatest idol of today. I reckon you probably agree. Obedience then becomes a hated concept. A bit like what Ross was saying at the start of the service. Um, no one, not even God, if he exists, has the right to tell me what to do. That's what we say. I did a funeral a while back and um, the man who died was a, a very successful businessman. And anyway, his, his granddaughter performed Sinatra's My Way. And, you know, great, great song. She, man, she had some pipes. She sang it so well. It was just amazing. Really wonderful rendition of it. She could sing. However, um, I, I'd actually got to know the man a little bit in the last few days, and, and in fact, a few weeks too before his death. And I'm not actually quite sure the song was an accurate description of his life. He, he wasn't the guy who was, did it his way. He's actually a really generous, selfless man. Um, but what was interesting is that that was the way his granddaughter thought about his life. Not in a bad way. She was thinking it was a good way, a good thing. Um, he did things his way. If that's the popular, popular thinking today about our lives, it means when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, when they're, when they're converted, well, there is a whole bunch of reprogramming to do, isn't there? Because at the heart of Christianity, the most fundamental Christian creed that we say, if you're a Christian, is not, I did it my way. The heart of Christianity is actually saying, Jesus is Lord, not doing it my way. So yes, he's our saviour, he saved us, but he's also our Lord. In fact, there cannot be a rescue without coming under the rescuer's rule. The problem is, you see, 
we don't always think in covenant terms. We fall into the individualist trap of thinking Christ's work is primarily to bless me personally, to tolerate my continuing sins, even to be grateful for my allegiance to him. Now, if we fall into that trap, it's a one-way thing. That's not how the covenant works with God, the new covenant with the Lord Jesus. It's not my way. All the benefits of Christ's work on the cross without there being any ongoing demands on me and of my covenant loyalty expressed in faith and obedience. See, there's a clear pattern in Scripture of responding to God's grace in faith and obedience. We don't seek to obey God so as to receive forgiveness and what we might call covenant blessings. No, it's because we have already received the gifts of grace that we seek to show our love and gratitude through obedience. Let me read you a couple of passages from Scripture just to remind us, I suppose, about, uh, or maybe it's for the first time you're hearing this, but let me read you these uh, from Paul's letter to the Church at Corinth. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. Therefore, you've got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, honour God with your bodies. How about John 14, verse 21? So Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. In verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. See the order? It's significant, isn't it? He's the mercy of God, the God, the God of grace, and who, who's, forgi- who's, who's forgiven us, who's worked for us on the cross, who's given us the gift of Jesus. And the response is obedience and faith and trust in him. Uh, John 15, verse 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And skip down to verse 14, You are my friends if you do what I command. We cannot escape the pattern. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And Joshua 8, verse 30 to 35, is one of its strongest Old Testament expressions of it. Friends, we, we, don't, we don't have an altar like um, the Israelites uh, built on Mount Ebal. And, uh, and, and, the, and the communion table, by the way, in the old building is not an altar. Uh, that needs to be out of... It's, not, it's just a table, that's all it is. And this table here is not an altar. It's actually a plastic table underneath there. You can, you, can, you can take it away on holidays even. Um, we don't have really an altar like that. But our altar, so to speak, is the cross of Jesus Christ, where the sin offering was made for us once for all and where fellowship is established between us and God. And so we can and should be there every day in our own personal devotional time, in our prayers, reclaiming his forgiveness and reaffirming, renewing our trust and our relationship, renewing our vows, if you like, our own trust in his promises of grace and renewing our commitment to obey his commands. I wonder today, we spend a moment, maybe I'll I'll pray this way in a minute, I wonder today if we need some time to think about where am I not being obedient to God? See, if you're a Christian person, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, he's died for you. He's given his life for you. Uh, He showed his mercy in working in your life. I wonder today where where you need to obey the Lord Jesus. 
And this comes to this little quote here as well. I'll, just, I'll read it to you. It's by a guy called Jack, um, David Jackman. He's a UK author and um, a pastor, uh, preacher. He's, he's really good. If you come across any of his stuff, buy it, read it. It's really good. It's a longish quote, but it, it pauses us to think about um, our obedience and where we need to change and where we need to renew that relationship and say, God, I'm sorry, I need to change. I'll, just, I'll read it all, but I want to highlight that little word, verse there. Little, sorry, little line. See the third line? It demands our whole, whole of our life, whole of our being, since spiritual neutrality is impossible. What a great line. You can't be spiritual neutral with Jesus. He's not your Lord, if that's the case. If you're sitting on the fence with Jesus, uh, you can't be spiritual neutral. Anyway, let me read you the quote. Being a Christian is not about being, playing spiritual games or having a spare time religious interest. It's like giving God the leftovers. It demands our whole sorry, it demands the whole of our being since spiritual neutrality is impossible. We cannot worship truly at the cross, our altar, and then go on living in disobedience because the two attitudes are mutually exclusive. But if we seek to live in obedience, although we will often fail and fall, if our lives are characterised by repentance and faith, God is with us. He is committed to those who trust him and his victories will become ours. Oh, it's really good. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll see if there's any time, sorry, any, um, any questions or, or comments, need a bit of clarification, anything like that, any pronunciation help, that sort of thing. Um, let me pray.